All right, so we are in the book of Jude, and you might wonder, well, why Jude? After all, we are, uh, we've been studying 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. All I can say is two things. If you, if you go to seminary, which you probably won't, um, but if you did, you would often take a, and you take classes on books of the Bible, the, the Johannine letters is what they're called, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, are often grouped with Jude, not because John and Jude were related, or the, certainly not the same person, we'll find out who Jude was in a minute, but because they have the same theme, and that is uh, the truth of God's Word. And they're, they're in the same section of the Bible, too. That certainly helps. But let's talk about who was Jude, why was this letter written, and then we'll get into the, the letter itself. Jude um, is a shortened form of the name Judas. Believe it or not, uh, you don't see any, any young men named Judas today for obvious reasons. But in the first century, that was a very popular name for two reasons. The tribe of Judah was the largest of the surviving tribes after the exile. But also there was a character in between the Testaments named Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus means the hammer. Judah the hammer. That sounds like a professional wrestler, doesn't it? Um, but he was a revolutionary. Um, the Maccabees later on became corrupt and, and their legacy was very much tarnished. But he was a man who brought liberty to Israel, made them an independent nation for the last time for several centuries, uh, actually, for the last time until 1948. So uh, the, the time of Jesus, the time of the apostles was a very patriotic time in Israel, and so it was popular to name your sons after characters from biblical history. And so you see that even in Jesus' apostles, as you see Simon, which is Simeon, uh, and you see uh, actually Matthew, uh, uh, Jacob, James is a version of Jacob, and so forth. So uh, he lists himself, and we'll, we'll start the, the epistle in just so, a second, but he calls himself a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. So we know his name, but why does he call himself a brother of James? Who's James? He's not going to name James unless we're expected to know who James was. Well, there were only two famous Jameses in the Bible. Not Jesse James, no. Uh, not a member of the James gang. Uh, he, there was the son of, of Zebedee, brother of John. Well, he was beheaded long before this book was written. The other James was the brother of Jesus. So what most people believe and what church tradition affirms, so people who lived 200, one or 200 years after this book was written, Jude was a brother of Jesus. But he didn't claim it in his letter Instead, he called himself the servant of Jesus and the brother of James. Why? Well, because he understood by this time, by this time, that Jesus was more than just his earthly brother. He was his, his king and his savior. So it's, it's a pretty remarkable thing when you read that in just a moment. Um, so let's start the letter. Let's talk about why this letter was written, and we find it out in verse, uh, in verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 3, but we'll start right here with verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Christ Jesus. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once entrusted to God's holy people. 
For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So uh, you notice that he says, first of all, this isn't written to a specific church like Paul's letters. This is written to anybody who call, is called by Jesus Christ and loves God the Father. He wanted to write about the salvation we all share. He wanted to write a, a letter sort of like Paul's letters. Let me tell, talk to you about how what a miracle it is that we are saved. And here's how it happened. But instead, he was compelled. He was compelled to write and warn you to contend for the faith that was once, this, this is how I learned it in the King James when I was growing up, the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And saints means not people made of marble or plaster, but anyone who follows God, anyone who is a child of the king. So when he says the faith that was once delivered to the saints, it's referring to the doctrines that were passed down to the apostles. He's saying the, the truth of Scripture, the gospel, the doctrines that make a, a Christian a Christian. He says, you, I'm warning you, you better contend for that stuff. Now, we don't use that word contend. What does he mean when he says contend? It's actually a word in Greek that comes from the world of wrestling or boxing. He says, you've got to fight for the faith. It, it, it entails, it implies that it's not going to be easy. And you're going to take some, you're going to take some losses here and there. You're going to, you're going to be wounded. You're going to feel overmatched at times, but you've got to get in there and fight. You've got to fight for the faith. Why? Well, as he says here, because certain individuals have secretly slipped in among you. Their condemnation was written about long ago, but they've slipped in among you. That's the way of false teachers. They don't announce themselves. They don't come into a church and say, or get on their, today, get on their YouTube channel or their podcast and say, by the way, uh, I just want you all to know I'm departing from historic doctrinal Christianity here. They're not going to do that. Instead, they're going to say things like, uh, this, is, this is the truth you haven't been told. Your preachers have been, have been giving you this narrow version of Christianity. Let me tell you the real truth. And what does he say about them? First of all, they pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. Now, a few weeks ago when we were in 1 John, I gave you a list that I got from someone else, and I gave him full credit of the seven different kinds of false teachers? Well, we see two of them in this list. One is those who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. What does that mean? They take God's word and they strip it of any commands that say, thou shalt not. Now, can we be honest? And we've talked about this before. There is a version of Christianity that is nothing but the shalt nots. That's, that's called legalism. And the Bible warns against that all over and over again, and especially in the book of Galatians. So uh, the cure to this problem is not to become a church that cares only about the rules and that is constantly condemning anybody who, who strays uh, away from what you think is right. But the truth is there are commands in the Scripture that are there for your good. I know I, know I don't need to sell you on this, but it's good for us sometimes to reaffirm when, when the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not commit adultery, when Jesus talks about uh, being faithful to the one God has given you and they shall become one flesh, 
God didn't give us that command to make life hard for us. He did it to make life easy for us. Have you ever known someone who committed adultery who didn't regret it later? I don't. And you may say, well, there's this one guy and he ran off with someone half his age. And I guarantee you, if you track that guy down today, he's miserable. And I don't say that with any delight. I say it as a fact. God is trying to rescue us. He's trying to protect us with these commands. And false teachers come along, and either because they themselves want to indulge in certain activities and behaviors, or because they know it's going to make them popular, they're able to say, I know that you've heard that you shouldn't do these things or that you should do those things, but ah, don't worry about that. that. That was one kind of false teacher they had that they were dealing with. The other was the kind that denies Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. And that was the whole theme of 1 John, if you recall. That, that teachers would come in and they would be in every way a Christian teacher except without the Jesus. <laughs> and if you don't think that's possible, you haven't been listening to preaching lately. Because it is very possible to be a, a preacher who preaches uh, moral living a preacher who preaches uh, political conservatism, a preacher who preaches uh, a, a lifestyle that, that is successful and the gospel never comes up. That happens today. These preachers were denying Jesus Christ. They were either denying that he was fully human or that he was fully divine. Either way, when Jesus isn't the focus of the preaching and teaching, it's not Christian teaching. So that's why this letter was written. Jude had heard enough stories and encountered enough of these kind of guys that he said, I wanted to write a happy letter. I have to do this instead. We have to fight. Now, so what he goes from there is he next gives us three examples from, uh, of wandering from the truth. Two of them are going to be familiar. One of them is going to be not familiar. So Verse 5, though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So three examples he lists. The first one is very familiar. That's the Israelites who were delivered from Egypt. It never fails to amaze us when we read the book of Exodus that God does these amazing things to rescue his people from slavery. Ten plagues, uh, parting the Red Sea, bread from the, from the sky and water from a rock. I mean, there's just miracle after miracle. And yet every time they take a minute, they stop and say, eh, we should go back to Egypt. And we just shake our heads and say, well, how can you do that? It's a reminder that a person can hear the good news, see all the benefits of Christianity, someone who grows up in a, a good Christian home, right? Where there's not rank hypocrisy, but instead sincere faith in Christ. Somebody who uh, is surrounded by believers who may not be family, but they're close friends who invest in them. It is possible for someone to have every spiritual advantage and still turn away. And that's what Jude is warning against here, like those Israelites. 
And they, they come up over and over again in the scripture as a warning, as, as a cautionary tale. Now, this next example is not going to be familiar to any of us because it's not actually in the Bible as far as we can prove. Let me tell you what I mean. So the second example is fallen angels. Uh, let me again read what he says. He says, and, the, and this is verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these, has, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Here's what I want to say to you. You can have theories about what he's talking about there, but you better not be dogmatic about it. Now, here's one theory. Genesis 6-4 is one of those verses that just baffles people. Genesis 6-4 says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. This is in your notes, by the way. Nephilim were in the, on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. All right, I, I, I hesitated to even bring this up because I don't want you to just get off on this and never come back to the book of Jude. But when you read Genesis 6 and you see that and you go, what on earth does that mean? Well, some people believe it's saying that at that point in history, angels came down and had relations with human women and you had these uh, half angelic, half human children and God punished those angels for not knowing their place and put them in uh, divine prison, so to speak. Maybe. Others say, no, it just means that uh, people who were raised uh, believing in God let their sons uh, da marry daughters of families that didn't believe in God. We don't know, but that could be what Jude is referring to. There are other theories. I don't even know uh, enough about them to recommend them or not recommend them. I will say regardless of what he's talking about. Obviously, he knew what he was talking about, and he expected the people he was writing to to know what he was talking about. I hope you're comfortable with saying, I just don't know. Because if you're not, you're, you're going to put your foot in your mouth in a big way when you talk about the Scriptures. The things that you can say for sure are the things that are important, the things that matter for salvation. But, but things like, what does Jude verse 6 mean? That's not going to be a, a litmus test on whether you get to heaven or not. All you need to know is the point that Jude is making, which is don't rebel against the Word of God. Don't rebel against His will. If you do, there are consequences. God's will exists for a reason. These angels, whatever they did, they rebelled against God, and they're paying for it to this day. That's the point Jude is making. Now, this third example is more familiar not comfortable to hear, but it's the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know that story. And I don't think we need to rehearse that story. I do want to say this, though. There's something a lot of people don't understand. A lot of folks, you read that story about what the men of that city tried to do to Lot and uh, the angels who'd come to visit him. And they say, okay, that God was so mad at them for doing that, he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think it's, the truth is much bigger than that. Because if you recall, God had already decided to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah before that happened. The angels came and the Lord himself and talked to Abraham and his, in his tent and said, I'm going to go down and I'm going to do this to, to Sodom. And, and Abraham kind of negotiated with him and said, well, would you spare the city if you could find uh, 45 righteous? And he, he talked him down to, to 10 so God had already made a decision to destroy the city. Why? Well, Ezekiel 
16, 49 through 50 says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excessive food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Ezekiel the prophet says the reason God destroyed the cities is because they had a lot of money and they didn't help the poor. So what I believe is their lack of compassion was the reason God was going to destroy them. And that attack, that, that attempted homosexual rape was a symptom of their godlessness. That was, that was what happens to a society when it veers off from God. But it ought to give us pause because we look at that story in Genesis and we say, well, I'd never think to do something that horrible. But do we stop and say, how many times have I lacked compassion? When Ezekiel says that's the reason he destroyed the cities. Let that rest on you for a while. The point is, when we drift from God over time, which is what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, two of the great cities of the ancient world, we eventually become people who are capable of doing monstrous things like those men tried to do in Sodom. That's the point that Jude is making. There are consequences to wandering from the truth. Now, the next thing he gets to is three problems with the false teachers that he was dealing with. In verse 8, he says, In the very same way, the on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. So three problems, specific problems with these false teachers, they pollute their bodies is the first thing. I think what it means is they teach that it's okay to do things with your body that the, the Word of God forbids. Again, that's a common trope in false teaching. This idea that, uh, that we can just ignore the commandments of Scripture because it's not convenient for us. The second thing he charges them with, they reject authority. The authority he's talking about is the authority of the apostles, the authority of God's Word. They, they do what they see fit. Sounds like the book of Judges, doesn't it? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. But then the third one's a little harder to understand. They heap abuse on celestial beings. Okay, now I'm going to try. I'm going to try to explain that. Because he gives an example next of something that's not recorded anywhere in the Bible. He mentions the archangel Michael. Michael is only mentioned in one other book of the Bible. Can anybody know what it is? I'll be real impressed. It's in the Old Testament. It's Daniel. It's the only other time he's mentioned. All right? So he gives an ex He says, that you, you remember that time Michael and the devil were disputing over the body of Moses? And we, 2,000 years later, say, no, I don't remember that. <laughs> but you see, one of the things that happened in, in the biblical world, there were things people knew that weren't written down. Stories that had been passed down generation after generation within Judaism. Now, were some, all of those stories true? I don't know. But Jude, as an apostle of God, was equipped to know the stories that were true. And he heard this story passed down from the time of Moses. We wish we had more details, don't we? 
what on earth did the devil want with the body of Moses? Did he want to prop it up and use it as an idol to, to coax the people into worship? We don't know. Uh, the point, that's not the point. The point that Jude is making is, here's Michael, the archangel, which we assume means the most powerful of all, all the angels. And even he needed to call on God's authority to rebuke the devil. His point is, if you're a false teacher, you claim to have your own power. You have your own authority. You don't need anybody to back up what you say. There's an underrated virtue in leaders today, and that is humility. Humil you won't find it listed in a resume of a CEO or a head football coach or uh, you know, any, any, any famous successful person. Humility won't put you on the cover of Forbes or, or Sports Illustrated or any other magazine. It won't get you on TV. And yet, and yet, that's what you need to look for in your spiritual leaders. Humility. Humility is the knowledge that on my own, God's given me a gift to teach but on my own, that gift is going to be ineffective at best and might actually lead people into destruction. I need the Word of God to keep me straight, and I need the Spirit of God to empower my teaching. That's the kind of humility you want in your teachers, and the false teachers didn't have it. Remember how the people would be so amazed when Jesus would get up and teach, and they'd say, oh my goodness, look at this man. He teaches like one who has authority. Because he did. <laughs> because he was the Son of God. He's the only one that gets to do that. All right? If you ever hear yourself saying that about any earthly teacher, male or female, behind a pulpit or otherwise, and say, oh, they teach as one with authority. They're bringing up things I've never thought of, never heard of. I don't see that in the Bible anywhere, but it sure sounds true. That's where you know you've gone wrong. All right? Three problems with the false teachers. They pollute their bodies, they reject authority, and they heap abuse on celestial beings because they think they're bigger and they don't need help. Now, finally, three stories of the consequences of rebellion. Verse 11. We're going we're gonna to get to the rest of the book of Jude in the next two weeks, but we're going to stop here with verse 11. He says, Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. So three stories that he mentions there. Cain, we know the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, why did Cain get angry at his brother, angry enough to kill him? He wanted God to accept his offering instead of asking, well, what kind of offering does God want? Think about how that translates into our practice of our faith today. Do we get upset because God's not answering our prayers instead of asking, well, what is there in me that, that's stopping him from answering my prayers? Do we get uh, upset that I'm not getting anything out of church these days before stopping and asking, well, is there something in me that's not allowing me to connect with God? Is it, is it my own rebellion? Is it my own pride? Uh, the way of Cain uh, led to him being a wanderer all his days. And that happens to us. We, we, we get into a place of absolute loneliness where we're cut off from God and man because we think we know best. Uh, the second example he lists is Balaam. And Balaam's story is one we all love. Oh, isn't it adorable? He had a talking donkey. Isn't that great? <laughs> the sad part we don't hear about very often, and that is later on, according to Numbers 31.16, he didn't learn his lesson. 
Balaam was a false prophet up until that day. The talking donkey straightened him out, but only for a time. Numbers 31.16 says that he convinced Midian, the people who had tried to hire him in the first place, you know, we can't curse Israel because God is on their side. So instead, let's invite them to our pagan parties. Let's get them hitched to some of our pagan women. Let's, uh, let's seduce them with wine, women, and song. And it worked. And he was killed by the Israelite army when the army uh, destroyed Midian. So again, this is the consequences of rebellion against God. And then the third example is Korah's rebellion. So in number 16, we read the story of, of these three men, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They were the ones who stood up to Moses in the wilderness and said, or stood up amongst the people and said, why are we following Moses? Where has it gotten us? And what gives him this qualification? Y'all have known me longer. Uh, he came out of nowhere. And, and now he's led us in the middle of the desert where there's no water and we just eat this nasty manna that's on the ground every day. Uh, follow me and I'll lead you back. And remember what happened to those men? I can remember this so distinctly hearing about this when I was a little boy and it scared the snot out of me. The earth opened up and swallowed them whole. Those are, that, that's consequences of rebellion, right? Um, the consequences of rebellion are awful, but the point that Jude is making is the consequences of our inaction are just as tragic. Remember, there's all kinds of false teachers. We can count on it. We will encounter them in the world today. We may even encounter them at times in our own church. The point of these scriptural warnings is not to make us arrogant, is not to make us suspicious, is not to make us judgmental. Because just as often as they warn against false teaching, they also warn every bit as often to be unified, to love your brother, to bear each other's burdens, to, to treat each other with kindness and generous, ge generosity and gentleness. But we need to be aware that these things are out there. We need to be ready to speak uh, direct words to people who are not teaching the truth. The consequences of our inaction can be massive and tragic. You may hear someone say something that's not true, that you know is not true. And you may think, well, it doesn't hurt me. I know the truth. But what about everybody else who hears it? You have to speak. And again, you speak with humility. You give the benefit of the doubt until you can't anymore. You think to yourself, well, maybe you just misspoke or maybe I heard you wrong. Or maybe you and I just need to get together and talk this over because I think, I think you're wrong about this. You do everything you can not to embarrass, not to put on the spot, not to condemn. But in the end, you must stand up for the truth. And I say that even if you hear me say something that you don't think is biblical. You know what? Especially if you hear me, because more people listen to me than anybody else in this church by nature of my position. I will say this. It has happened. I've had people come to me and often very nervously. Jeff, I heard you say this. Did I hear you right? And thank God, most of the time, I just misspoke or uh, they heard wrong. Um, in one case, one woman, and it's not in this church, so don't worry. One woman literally got me confused with another preacher she heard somewhere else. 
And I was really glad because what she said he said was really bad. And then there are other times when we've had to sit down and just say, okay, I understand you believe that, but where do you get that from? And we've had to work through the scriptures and okay, we came out with an understanding at the end. But I always appreciate that. I always appreciate that they felt enough boldness, enough courage to say, I don't know what's going to happen. I've never done this before. I, you know, he went to seminary. I didn't. He might get mad at me. He might try to throw me out of the church. But they did what the Word of God says to do. And I appreciate that. And so I call on you to have that same mindset, that the truth is, the truth is worth fighting for. Earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your truth, your truth that lasts forever. And I pray that we would know it well enough that when we hear something that's not true, we would spot it, that it would not fool us. I pray, oh, Heavenly Father, that when we hear things that aren't true in our church, that we would confront it in the way that we should. When we hear of people we love who are believing things that aren't true, give us wisdom to confront it in a way that is persuasive that doesn't just start a fight, but actually shows people the truth. Lord, when we hear things out in the world that aren't true, give us wisdom to know how to speak truth in love. Lord, these things are not easy. And for most of us, we'd rather just keep quiet. But give us wisdom and boldness. We need it in Jesus' name. Amen.